I'm Chris Kreitcho, and this is the New Rust Station Podcast, a 15 to 20 minute show about learning the Rust programming language. This is Episode 3, No More Nulls. Before we jump in today, a couple pieces of news and one shout out. The shout out first. GitHub user Roman KL made my week last week when he or she submitted a pull request to the show to fix an error in a link. Huzzah! More like that. And if you see problems in the show notes or problems with the code samples, please do send me a pull request and I will include it and you'll probably get a shout out. A couple fun things going on in the community in the last week. First is an announcement about upcoming IDE support. The Rust core team has announced that they'll be targeting a number of existing IDEs to extend them to have good Rust support in them. Among them, the JetBrains suite, including IntelliJ IDEA, and Eclipse, and Visual Studio. This is in addition to the existing work that's been going on in the community with Efforts for, of course, the old standbys of Vim and Emacs, as well as more modern editors. Note that I didn't say more powerful. Please, please don't come after me with pitchforks, anyone. Other more modern editors like Atom and Sublime and the code completion via Racer and all of that. Great stuff has already been going on. But as someone who makes good use of an IDE every day, suffice it to say I'm very excited to see support coming on for these even more powerful tools. I will get good use out of that. Last but not least, a couple fun learning tools you may find helpful in your own journey of being a new Rust station, and that, if you're still relatively new at this like I am, might just be a good reminder or review. The first is the Rustlings set of exercises by Carol Nichols. The other is the Rust FFI Omnibus by Jake Golding. The first of these just gives you a set of small exercises to ask what's wrong in this particular thing using the Rust Playground tool. And in each case, you can go through and figure out why it's not compiling. Very handy little tool. Simple exercises, but handy. The second, this FFI Omnibus helps you work through what it looks like to do foreign function interface in situations a bit more complex than the standard hand and integer back and forth example that are in the Rust book. Those examples are great, and the similar examples in the Rust by example book are great, but at the end of the day, most of the time we're not just handing an integer back and forth when we're doing foreign function interface between Rust and some other language. As such, having some detailed examples you can work through is very helpful, so I commend those to you. And now, for the show proper. Today we are going to talk about enumerated types, pattern matching, and the application of these to one of the most important and difficult problems in programming, handling return values. Now, you may be wondering why in the world I would say that's a particularly difficult problem. Well, it's a particularly difficult problem because of this dreadful and terrible thing called null, or nil, or void, or all sorts of different names in different programming languages. But it is a terrible, dreadful thing because, well, it's sort of like a horrific monster that infects everything. If you have void somewhere, if you start passing around this null type, you start having to check for it everywhere. Most of us who have been programming for any length of time have found ourselves in situations where we are compulsively checking for the existence of none. Because if we don't, we might get bitten by our program crashing because we tried, oh, to call a method on a none type. We'll see, by the end of today's episode, how Rust fixes that problem. And Rust doesn't fix that problem in a way that's unique to Rust. But 
it is very powerful, and it is, to my knowledge, one of the first languages to bring this to the systems programming space. We're going to get there in two steps. First, by talking about enumerated types, and second, by talking about pattern matching. It is the combination of these two things that allows us to do the kinds of sophisticated return types and error checking that we'll need. First up, enumerated types. An enumerated type looks, at the definitional level, a lot like a struct, which we talked about last week in episode 002. But, whereas a struct contains all of the different pieces with which you define it, an enum contains only one of the pieces which, with which you define it. Formally speaking, this means that structs are a kind of product type. Again, they include all the pieces that make them up. So in the code sample I supplied last week, you might have a circle which has an origin, an x and y coordinate that tell you where the center of the circle is, and a radius that tells you how big the circle is. And every circle has to have all of those pieces of data about it, otherwise it's not a circle. An enumerated type isn't like that. An enumerated type is a sum type. It has one and only one of the possible states which make it up. Now, this is probably familiar to you if you spent time with languages like C or C++, which have an enum type. However, there are a number of very significant differences between Rust's enum types and a C enum type. The most important of these is that the most basic kind of enumerated value, a unit type in a Rust enumeration, does not map to an integer. In C, enumerated types all map directly to integers. In fact, they are interchangeable with integers, even without performing a, an explicit cast. This can be handy at times, but it also means that you can hand-wave things all too often. In Rust, the most basic enumerated type, a unit enumerated type, has itself and only itself as its value. So, for example, if we had a list of colors, red, green, and blue, the value of colors red would simply be colors red. It would not be 1 or 0 or 49 in the list of colors. It would be its own distinct type. And this is important because it means that those sorts of coercions and the sorts of unhelpful things that go with them are not problem in Rust. Now, there are other kinds of enumerated values in Rust too. In fact, any kind of value that is valid in a struct definition is also valid in an enumerated definition. So you can include values. You can have a hue, for example, that includes the hue components of a color as a tuple. You could have an integer value. You could have a string value. You could have a structure value. And in a few minutes, when we talk about return types with pattern matching, we'll see how to apply those kinds of values to returning data meaningfully. For the moment, however, suffice it to say that with an enumerated type, you have the ability to specify one out of a list of options, and those options can include everything from a self-defining type to incredibly complex values just like any struct or other type you can think of. Because you can include those different kinds of values, enumerated types in Rust can do everything you could do with an enumerated type in C but they can also do a lot more, and a lot more safely. Now imagine that you were handed an enumerated type as the argument to a function, and you wanted to process through it, and you wanted to make sure that you got all of the cases that that enumerated type could contain. Well, in Rust, you would do this with pattern matching. When you pattern match in Rust, 
you must match exhaustively. That is, you must cover every single case in the space you are matching against. So in the case of our list of three colors, your pattern matching block would have to cover red, green, and blue, or some combination of these. If you forget one of the necessary combinations, your code won't compile. Now, that might sound like something you've heard before if you're familiar with the switch construct in C or Java, and that's right. There is an analogy here. The match arms of a pattern match in Rust are something like the case statement bodies in C or Java. However, just as enums are rather more sophisticated and powerful in Rust than the similar types are in C, so also pattern matching is sufficiently more capable in Rust than it is in C or Java or languages like that. In addition to the aforementioned enumerated types, you can also match on things like ranges of numbers, strings, tuples, different structs. You name it, you can pretty much match on it in Rust, and that's very, very powerful. If the space is coherent, such that the pattern matching can be described as exhaustive, you can match against it. There are lots of situations where this kind of thing might be useful. As I mentioned before, and as we'll get to in a few moments, handling return values exhaustively could be really helpful. If we wanted to write a finite state machine, this could be helpful. If we were interpreting a set of responses from an API and we knew those responses were bounded, this could be helpful. If we were parsing tokens in an actual parser working through some language construct, this would be helpful. Being able to iterate over a set of enumerated values is very handy. And because match arms are expressions, you can actually assign the result of a match to a variable. When we talk about expressions in a future episode, we'll talk more about how powerful that is. For now, suffice it to say that it makes writing complex calculations of what value you should get for a particular term much simpler when you have complicated blocks that would ordinarily be if-else statements in many other languages. Last but not least, you can deconstruct complex terms in pattern matching so that you can get out the values within them. For example, when we talked about colors a minute ago, I suggested that you could have a hue that included the various color components as a tuple. Well, if you matched against that, you could break those components out into the various hue components and then use those within the body of the match expression. So now we have a little bit of an idea of how you might be able to use enums and how you might be able to use pattern matching. Let's put these together to think about meaningful return statements. As I noted early in the episode, null and void can really bite us, and they often do. Many modern languages include the notion of an optional type, and these optional types do something really interesting, and frankly, more interesting than I'm going to have time to cover in the next few minutes, but I'll give you an overview. Let's say that you have a value that you know ahead of time as you're creating a function could succeed, or it could come back and there not be a meaningful result. Maybe your database doesn't give you data back because you lose your connection to it. Maybe you don't get a response from a server on the web. Maybe you go looking for a file and it's not there. In all of these situations, we might be tempted in a language like Java or C or Ruby or Python to return the null kind of thing, whatever we call that in that specific language. In languages like Rust, we have a better way of handling that, an option type. 
You might hear this called maybe in Haskell or optional in Swift or other things in other languages. The point is many languages have this construct and here's how it works. You hand back a sum type, an enum that can be either something or nothing. But you're explicit from the get-go that it's going to be one of those two things. If it's something, you'll wrap up whatever kind of thing it ought to be. So for example, you might have an optional integer, and you hand back an option integer enum. And if the call you made succeeded, then what would come back would be some integer. And if not, it would be none, but it would be an enumerated type none. And because pattern matches are and must be exhaustive, because you can't even compile a program where you fail to cover all possible cases in a pattern matching scenario, you have to handle that none type. And what that means is you must account for it anywhere that it could infect your system. Unlike in languages where void can infect things without you knowing it, you're never able to hit a point where you accidentally got hit with a none. If your program crashes because of something you did with a none, you did it explicitly and on purpose. And that's powerful. It means that you can be sure of how you're handling those kinds of side effects. Because those kinds of side effects are unavoidable, as I said a moment ago. You can end up in situations where things that are out of your control come back to you and give you a result where it is in fact appropriate to say, nope, there was nothing there. But if you're going to do that, you have to be able to do it in a way that doesn't crash the rest of your program that expects it to be there. Because we have pattern matching, and because we have a sophisticated and powerful sum type, the enumerated type, we can do that in Rust. And we should. And if you look around at the standard library implementations, you'll find that we do. There's another type, the result type, which very similarly allows us to send a meaningful return back from functions that we've called. Let's say that we want to be able to return either a value or an error. Well, in many languages, we could do this with tuple types, and you could do that in Rust, but you don't have to. In other languages, like C, you might have to specify that the result is an error code and use an in-out parameter to solve this. In Rust, you simply use an enumerated type, and what you hand back is either the value that you wanted to send back or an error, and you can define how that error should be shaped. If that error should just be a string defining what it is, great. If it should be a code, great. If it should be the combination of an error code and a descriptive string explaining it, great. You can do all of those things. Again, enumerated types are very powerful. And again, because you have to check all the cases, you know ahead of time that an, a function might return an error, and you know how to check it, and you're forced to check it. This is extraordinarily powerful, and it allows us to solve problems that are frankly extremely vexing and difficult to deal with in other languages, as I did all day today. Let's just say I wish I had been writing Rust instead of C++ today. Next week, we'll extend this discussion about functions that we started a little bit here at the end and look at functions themselves in more detail. We'll look at regular functions, we'll look at methods, we'll look at closures, we'll even look at functions that take functions as arguments and return them as their responses. This will give us a good excuse to talk a bit about the stack and the heap as well. We'll introduce those ideas along the way and generally have a good time talking about functions. You can find show notes for this week's episode with detailed code samples illustrating these ideas, as well as links to things mentioned on the show at newrestation.com. 
You can also follow the show on Twitter or app.net at NewraStation, or you can follow me there at Chris Kreitcho. If you like the show, please rate and review on iTunes to help others find it as they explore Rust. And if you really like the show, I'd welcome your financial support at patreon.com slash NewraStation. Last, but not least, I'd love to hear from you on social media, in the thread for the show on users.rustlang.org, or via email. Shoot me your thoughts at hello at newrustation.com. Until next time, happy coding.